Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. It is a rainy Tuesday, January the 15th of 2019. We have a great show for you today with the fourth installment in our cannabis series. We got two guests today, international calling from Ontario, Canada, as well as North Carolina. And we're here local in LA. They serve as the chairman and CEO and COO of Cordova Can. Taz Turner has extensive experience in the asset management industry. He's worked in hedge funds, venture capital, founded the fund South Shore Capital Partners almost a decade ago, investing in public and private companies and cannabis for years. Nate has served as a consultant to various public-private companies since 1996 and has vast experience consulting to both in all aspects of cannabis operations. Welcome to the show, Taz Turner and Nate Nienheis. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. So guys, that was a long and winding intro, but you know, two disclosures. I think you guys are the first of 150 or so episodes, public company we've had on the podcast. So that's a lot of fun. And second, this is my first familial relation we have on the podcast, Taz Turner, a first cousin of mine. So if I was to go back 40 years that I've known you, Taz, and you would have said 30, 20, 10 years ago that you would now be the CEO of an international cannabis company, I said I might have been a little surprised. But why don't you give us a real brief overview of uh, what Cordova does? Yeah, so at Cordova, we're really driving at the what we feel is the holy grail of cannabis, which is producing predictable products that give consistent effects. And so that really leverages the technology platform that we have through our partners in NWN Inc. And what that allows for is to build superior plants through genetic editing, which gives obviously more revenue per plant, to lower the cost of goods sold by propagating through tissue culture. And then also what we find interesting is to drive and develop formulations of end products that are consistent time and time again whether that be in in pill, tincture, box, whatever form, medium it comes in, that's our end goal. And and we feel that that's something that's not being delivered to the cannabis industry today. And so to that end, we've gone out and acquired a number of different assets, uh, primarily on the western coast of of the U.S., where recreational cannabis is legal. And they're strong operators in and of themselves, but we're going to overlay this technology platform across those assets to make those operators even more valuable to Cordova. Interesting. So, all right. So it sounds like almost kind of like the full stack from flower all the way up to development of a product. I want to hear a little bit about y'all's background. To my knowledge, there's no LinkedIn tender for cannabis just yet. So, you know, Nate, you, you have a little longer background in the science. Maybe hear a little bit about what you've been up to, how, uh, how you got to the point where you started working with Taz, and we'll hear a little more about Taz and then dive into all things cannabis after that. Sure. It's been a little little bit of everything since 96 when the industry started in California. I mean, it's nothing, wasn't anything like it looks today, that's for certain, but it was a beginning and things were small and simple and very interesting. And so that was, that was the early stages and kind of carried that through, did a lot of different design work and worked with several different manufacturers designing industry specific equipment. I mean, for the longest time and still to an extent today, you know, the industry has just borrowed from other technologies that weren't weren't designed specific to the industry or for the industry. And so it's been a real pleasure to get pretty involved with a lot of different equipment and design that are specific to the industry and not just borrowing things. So have done that along with interacting and operating dispensaries, distribution, obviously the cultivation and manufacturing, and then uh, spent a little time in uh, Washington, D.C., working on the beginning of the D.C. program which was interesting work, learned a lot about interacting with 
a very senior level of regulatory, including Department of Health and the DEA and, and everybody, every other agency that operates in the space, and designed a couple, built a couple facilities there, got them up and running. And then shortly after completing that, was contacted by some colleagues that I knew through the industry that were getting things going in the beginning up here in, in Canada. And similar to what we've experienced throughout the states in the U.S. is that even the, the regulators aren't really sure entirely what to regulate or how. So I was able to come up here, participate with quite a few different LPs, and help them get acclimatized to working with a regulation that was going to be a lot different than what pre-existed and the way that they were operating prior to the, the new regulations coming into place. And that still continued to this point. What that's led into is the technology component that you hear Taz referencing. And that's really been, it started as a compilation of a couple decades worth of operational experience. And it's not just the manufacturing side. It was really, it was fueled by the interaction with the consumer and really understanding what the needs were from the consumer's perspective and what, well, needs from a medical perspective and desires from a recreational perspective. And as we're seeing more and more of those markets working in tandem throughout the, the space, whether that be in the U.S. or internationally, I think both are very important things to focus on in order to maintain the relevance of the products that you're building and the company that's over it. So that's been the primary focus of the technology and has touched on the consistency component, how we achieve it, formulation. All of these are really buzzwords that you hear a lot throughout the industry, but not a lot of people are explaining what that means and or how to get there. And that's really the premise by which we have approached this is to be able to display in a practical way what it is we're doing, why it's relevant, what it means, and what one could expect from the products. I love it. And it's, it's fascinating too, because your background has spanned kind of the entire maturation of the industry from sort of illicit part of the world in California where it finally became medicinal to where it finally became legal. What, and by the way, when you, when you say the, the U.S. program, I, our listeners may or may not know what that means. Does that mean that the U.S. has their own grow operation? Was you involved in kind of the regulatory build out? Like what, what, what does that kind of mean when you say the U.S. government's role and when you were in Washington? Well, what happened was is that in Washington, D.C., they don't have, it's not a state, it's a, it's a district. And effectively, they're body of oversight is Congress. And there had been a, a vote in D.C. to pass medical cannabis. And Congress had basically waited and as long as there's a timeline to implementation based on a vote. And they had it had been several years since that vote had taken place. But they got to a point where it was time to implement. And for as much as they had a background in law enforcement and the prevention of cannabis production, they too were trying to figure out an appropriate guideline or set of criteria by which they could impose the cultivation, distribution, and sales of cannabis in the District of Columbia. And what they ended up coming up with by bringing in all the different agencies that operate in the space is a very clear outline of what a national program would look like. I'm not implying that they discussed its implementation or timing, because that's a frequent question, and I have, I have no idea any more than the next guy, but they do have a structure for it. And so that was the goal of putting this together in D.C., which is obviously comparatively a very small market, but it was a, it was a test study. Um, basically, they could look at what was working, what the reporting structures looked like, how the analytics made sense, what, what the... The, the requirements would be from a, everything from a lab to a functional operation, SOPs, all the usual components that go into more typically a pharma type of manufacturing process than, than food grade, but it's kind of a hybridized combination of both. I guess would be the easiest way to explain it. And so Taz, you know, again, when I mentioned in the intro, we went to school together at University of Virginia. And if, if I could rewind and say who would probably be running a cannabis company, I would have said our buddy Martin walking around campus with his, his big purple bong. But instead, uh, instead, it was you who was a business school student who worked at some of the top VC and hedge funds before starting your own. So you probably came to this through the kind of investment side. Maybe walk us forward how you, you started to get interested in this industry and eventually jumped over to the operating side. Yeah, definitely. Um, I certainly was not interested in the industry back in those college days. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, looking back, even like you said, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even dreamed of myself being in this spot. But essentially, you know, my background is in uh, private equity and then eventually public equities mostly in the tech, internet, consumer spaces. 
And that's been the linear piece of what I've done over the last 20 years. And so really, I had a couple of business plans hit my desk in kind of the 2012 timeframe and started looking into the cannabis space, both in the US and Canada, and really just made the decision to initially start investing in Canada in late 2012, early 2013. And quite frankly, I guess better lucky than smart. The reason I had decided it was obviously because of the federal regulation that had come down on, on the medicinal side and, and what that uh, would lead to over time. I certainly didn't dream that it would explode the way it has in the time frame that it has in Canada. But that's what brought me to the cannabis investing. So I've been doing it for about seven years. I'd say about three years ago or so, I thought that the uh, Canadian market had certainly, uh, from an investment standpoint, had played out considerably. Obviously, I was a little early in, in making that decision, but uh, then started looking at the U.S. and looking at a number of different companies that were trying to access the Canadian markets, uh, Canadian money, both private and public. And so uh, in that whole process, helped out a couple companies here and there and then and decided that, you know, as I started talking to, to Nate and, and others, decided that there was, you know, what we thought a, a better way or a different way to go at, at the market in the U.S. And so... Uh, you know, I always joke with Nate, I, he, he's been kind of my sounding board for the last seven years. And as I've looked at, you know, investing in a number of different operators and, and uh, technologies in the cannabis space, you know, he was always my first call to, to figure stuff out. And so uh, through those conversations, which I'm sure were, were boring to him, but fascinating to me, we started talking about the best ways to approach the, the U.S. market and, and the right time to do so. And, and that led to what is now Cordova. Well, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what y'all are up to Cordova because listeners of this podcast have known that I went to the big trade show for the cannabis space recently in Vegas with like 20, 30,000 people. But it's fascinating to me just to hang out and kind of tag along with you guys to a lot of the conversations because it's an area that I know so little about, but could just sit there and kind of rapture and listen to this for, for hours because it's any of these kind of disruptive early industries. There's so much going on, which attracts, of course, a lot of crazy people too, and a lot of money, but also it builds some some major companies as we've seen recently with some of these enormous acquisitions going on in the cannabis space. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what it is you guys are doing. I mean, I, I've heard mention a couple times of the technology side and the genetics and, and what that means as far as intellectual property of what y'all are doing. Maybe expand a little bit on kind of the specifics of the Cordova roadmap of you know how you've ramped up from being essentially bootstrapping this from from... I don't want to say a startup, but from scratch and then growing it this into a growing uh, cannabis operation. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start, but Nate can certainly uh, riff on the uh, technology aspect of it it's far more in depth than I can. But essentially, as we started out, what we really wanted to do that we thought was differentiated, certainly when we were starting out, was to go after the more established markets. And I know some people call them mature markets, but I think California and Washington, Oregon, Colorado, places like that are, are far from mature. I mean, we've only scratched the surface on, on this industry, uh, even in those markets that have been around a while. But we, we thought the best approach to this, to this cannabis industry in the US was to go after these markets that are more developed and then overlay what I find is a uh, what we think is a cutting edge technology platform that really nobody else is pursuing. Certainly not on uh, from a recreational consumer focused standpoint. And so, uh, so that's what we really tried to do. We've secured some operations in Colorado and Oregon, and looking to secure some operations which we publicly announced in in California and Washington, and then implement this technology platform which does everything from generate more revenue per plant through the overexpression of cannabinoids uh, to reducing the cost of, of production uh, through tissue culture. And then, like I said, the uh, the end formulation. But I'll, I'll let Nate talk about uh, a little bit further about about kind of the depth of that technology and why we think it's so different relative to what's out there today. And I think uh, in the beginning, it's relevant to drill down on the, the core definitions of things like formulation and consistency. Having been someone involved in the industry as long as I have and have grown for as many years as I have, and as much as I really enjoy the, the cultivation process, I like working with the genetics. Uh, it's a very it's a very rewarding type of work because it, it, you got a very fast turnover rate. You, you can see your direct interaction, what kind of impacts you can have. And uh, certainly there is, a, there is a level of consistency that a cultivator can drive towards. However, you're still working with something that's a plant in nature. For as much as you can control all the way to like an indoor cultivation in a lab environment, you can control these things, but you're still going to have subtle, if as they may be, inconsistencies from batch to batch, in fact, even from plant to plant. 
And so when people are in the industry talking about consistency, in my view, albeit a very humble opinion, I don't see a, a, a direct co- connection between something that's coming out of a whole plant component as being the most consistent material that would translate to the consumer. I certainly agree and understand the appreciation for people that have come to enjoy a specific genetic, and that's one that they go after and uh, when they go into the store to, to shop. And that's still something that we will continue to provide as we see that it is extremely market relevant. However, for the larger scale and the increasing number of consumers that are joining all of these respective markets, they're looking for other platforms by which they can enjoy the product. And the biggest one that we get feedback on as from the manufacturing perspective is consistency and how come no one's product is consistent. And so we can explain it, but to date, there hasn't been much in the way of providing a solution. And so that's what you know we set out to do was to provide that solution. And it starts on the manufacturing side. And given that we have an inconsistent, albeit minorly, but still inconsistent feedstock material, we needed to solve for that in the manufacturing process. And the, the pathway that we've chosen is through formulation. Formulation meaning, as in simple definition, is just a combination of, of materials going into a finished product. However, when it comes to cannabinoids and the, and the fact that their ratio and concentration are relevant to the impact of the product in its final form, uh, in order to do that with effective definition, you need to be in a position where you're actually isolating all of the compounds that are coming from the feedstock material, i.e. the, the, the flower or, or plant materials, uh, and be able to isolate all those compounds and then recombine them in specific ratios or formulation that will achieve a desired effect. So we have two different platforms for that, one being more medical and the other being more recreational. So for medical, where we're, we're, we're targeting an acute treatment program based on the consumer's need and or in recreational where we're, uh, we're targeting a desired effect. So we have for, developed formulations that address those for both respective markets. We also are able to control things like time to reception of the product. So meaning efficacy timing, whether that be a fast release or delayed release, we can also control the timeline of the experience. And that has relevance on both sides, again, medical and recreational, depending on what the consumer's needs or wants are. But in order to truly be considered a a consistent formulation, you need to be in a position where your manufacturing platform isolates all those compounds and you're following that very specific recipe that goes into the desired effect. And that we also have a platform by which to deliver those combinations of formula or formulations into a different, a variety of different product platforms. So whether that be for a vape device, an ingestible or water soluble, topical, any number of edibles, any number of different product platforms, we have specific formulations that go into those materials that are tailored to that version of consumption and the, and the pathway in the body that it will go through in order for the consumer to uptake it. So it's, it's fairly complex when it comes to the science and how we've gotten to our understanding of how all these things work. We have over 30 full-time scientists that are working on this every single day. And we go through clinical trials, all different conventional formats of understanding these formulations and their impacts. But it offers us a a high level of understanding, which gives us a high level of versatility in our product lines. Is that something you guys are doing? I mean, because it's interesting to me because you think about that and it seems like that's a... You guys are kind of playing the long game there where you're building something that's consistent. You know, I feel like a lot of people that may, it's kind of the wild west of all these products and brands, but after you may have a few totally inconsistent experiences with some of the brands, you would just drop them and and eventually the good brands would bubble up. Is this something you guys plan on only doing in-house or is it something that you would say, contract out your scientific team to other companies and say, hey, look, you are awful at this. You should probably have a much better process. Is it mainly just for internal sort of process for now or how's that work? As our, our current plans wouldn't be to contract out our staff or as it were. However, from a manufacturing perspective, there's certainly an openness to being a manufacturing partner for other brands that would have an interest in 
deploying the technology but don't necessarily have the infrastructure or resources to do that on their own. Um, that would be definitely something that we have in our in our game plan uh, and in, have already gone down that path in, in conversation to to look into that with a few different opportunities. But as far as the the actual formulations themselves, that's the true IP. I mean, the scientific methodology to get there isn't necessarily proprietary, but the the formulations that we've developed are proprietary and not something that we would be particularly interested in just contracting out to the open market. And that would be the portion of it that we would keep in-house. Fascinating. And so, okay, so, so help me walk through the listeners that, you know, as you guys really kind of ramped up over the last couple of years, you know, you're aiming to have kind of the, in my, what seems to an uninformed person like me, you know, everything from flour to the manufacturing and, and production of, of a product, you know, how does that work? Because like, I know you guys properties in a number of different states. Is it all coming through kind of one channel where you're explain to me kind of like the whole vertical vertical integration of this company? Because I know there's stuff in Colorado and Washington and Canada, et cetera. Maybe, maybe give us a little more color on how it kind of all fits together. Regulatory framework in the US obviously does not allow us to ship cannabis product across state lines. And so what we can do, though, is obviously move IP and that know-how across state lines. So what we've gone out and done is secured operations, significant operations in a number of West Coast markets, like I said, the more developed markets. And that will be a means to an end in terms of pushing this technology platform through those operators. And so those operations, while viable, completely viable on their own without the technology, we feel like it's an operator on steroids, so to speak. Well, they'll be the sole purveyor of that technology in that particular state, as it were. So we've gone out, gotten these states, and then you know we'll start implementing the technology platform, you know, overlaying that technology platform in their operations. And then we hope to have hope to have products in market sometime in 2019. And, and those initial first products will be beverages, vapes, and and topicals. And so uh, that will be the, the initial kind of near-term play uh, in the U.S. And then you mentioned Canada. And so in Canada, what we've secured is a pending licensed producer. And upon getting that license, we'll actually be able to serve not only Canada, but the international markets on a non-exclusive basis using the technology. I should point out that in the U.S., we're the exclusive provider in the markets where we are in to serving this technology across those markets. You know, and I, and I will add, it's a little bit ironic and, and Nate's touched on the technology quite a bit, right? So, so Nate's right now in Toronto, pushing the, the science forward. It's kind of the mastermind behind all of that science. And it's a little bit ironic though, that the framework that's uh, the regulatory framework as it is today in Canada is what allows these human trials and these different types of testing to be done on a kind of pharma grade level at a, in a GMP facility. That, that can really only be done in Canada today. Right. In the U.S., you know, certainly they're not going to allow for human trials of cannabis products today. And so it is a little bit ironic that the R&D for this is, is being done in Canada. And these products very well could hit the U.S. market uh, before they're actually legally allowed in the Canadian market. So it's worth pointing that out as well. And how does this work as far as building out the actual brand? So as if you're talking about beverages and the vapes, et cetera, will this all come under Cordova brand or you put out individual different products? Like how's how's kind of that work? And, and is this something you guys would be doing the actual distribution of as well? Or is that where you could stop on the on the full chain of production? As Nate kind of pointed out, so we're, we're, we'll pursue both paths simultaneously. We'll, we'll keep some certain formulations in-house and produce those products in-house for distribution. And then we'll also, uh, we'll also partner with different manufacturers to be able to be that technology cannabis component to serve their market, whether that be a beverage company, whether that be an e-cigarette company for perhaps the vape product, whether that be a cosmetics company for the topical products. And so we're really pursuing both paths. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of what's the best way forward to get these products out to market in the most cost-effective and uh, inefficient manner. And so we're pursuing both. Just to the, the other, the second part of your question, we have distribution networks in each of the, uh, each of the markets that we're in. Matter of fact, when we go out and look to, uh, to acquire some of these operators, we place utmost priority on what I call relationship distribution, not distribution as it, in terms of, hey, it has a bunch of buildings that can serve as storage houses as we move product around the state, but really people that have relationships to be able to get into 40, 50, 60% of the dispensaries in that particular market. 
that is of huge value as we bring these formulated products to market, right? How, how, how much of the state can you access immediately once these products are are put into the market. It seems like such a pain in the ass with the regulatory. I mean, I guess that's where a lot of the alpha or operational benefits are dealing with with all this mess of regulations. And not only that, between two countries, US and Canada, but also state to state. I know, as, as Nate mentioned earlier, this is kind of a unfair question, but how's the regulatory environment feel to you guys? Any general comments that uh, you think might be useful? I know the answer is probably who knows with what's going on federally, but uh, any, any insight in that general world? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's definitely getting better, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, you look at all the polls and, and what the acceptance of cannabis consumption is on a recreational level. I mean, it only continues to go up and to the right in terms of acceptance on a national level. So that's got to be pushing things forward. On the banking front, certainly that's the last piece to be falling into place in our opinion. So who knows when when things will start opening up on that front. But there's been a massive shift in the acceptance from an investor perspective, the acceptance from a consumer perspective, literally just in the last 12 months. And obviously, while it's uh, not exactly cannabis, it's 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 kind of the, the stepbrother of cannabis in, in terms of the hemp and what has happened with the farm bill, that's only put a bigger spotlight on cannabis. And so, you know, I think the ball is continually moving forward. Anyone's guess as to when we get federal legalization, but I bet you it's certainly what I can say is it's certainly a lot closer than I thought it was, you know, 12 months ago. And they may be able to even give a little bit more insight given his you know time with governments all over the world. Yeah, no, I mean, it's ever growing. I think as an operator in the space, my perception is that the regulations are going to continue to get more specific as you, anyone who's dug into any of the state regulations or for national regulations, they're very wide cast net. They don't always have the specificity that would make it easier from a manufacturer's perspective, but they're getting better. That being said, along with finer detail comes higher scrutiny, which I am all for. I think it's important. I do believe that it's very relevant and hopefully everyone is operating from the same ethics page but the bottom line is is that you know we are producing a product that is being consumed and those regulatory requirements and oversight are extremely necessary and uh, as the I, I firmly believe that as the the program grows and especially once it goes federal in the US you're going to see an in- incredible increase in regulatory requirements and oversight. Right now you see a lot of it in the states, individual states, is that they're more focused on the revenue stream than they are necessarily looking at the claims made on the label and actual product contents and things like that. California's just now starting to implement the beginning of what appropriate product safety testing would look like. And I, I'm pleased to see that they're taking those steps. And I think that that whole process will further refine in the near future. And you'll see a real balancing of the operators involved in the space as you know many of them are currently realizing that to build a compliant product is very different than it has been historically with regard to what they are and are not allowed to do and what can and can't be residual in the product and the materials and so on and so forth so in my view that all translates to a safer and more reliable product for the consumer which i believe should be every every manufacturer's goal i mean it seems like just the general maturation of the industry i mean it it makes a lot of sense as you look around, you know, it's interesting to, to, to listen to you guys talk because it's a very thoughtful, intelligent, sober view, but also with a lot of what's been going on in the investment markets, it's been very boom bust. And then, like I mentioned, going to the conference, you see a lot of, a lot of craziness too. You know, as you guys think about scaling up and building this company and business, part of the day-to-day is acquiring assets. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about how you evaluate and what you're looking for and what kind of criteria as far as acquiring assets is even possible? Is everything too expensive? Is it you finding interesting ideas out there? What's what's that look like? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? I mean, I think, you know, as an investor for the last 20 years, I think this, it reminds me a lot, and this was very early on in my career, investing career, it reminds me a lot of the the internet craze and the, and the boom and bust and kind of what came out of that. And, you know, certainly I think that there's, there's guys that have real assets and then there's guys that are a little bit of smoke and mirrors and, and there's everything in between, right? And so when we set out to build Cordova, I mean, we wanted to have a consistent view of how we were going to, to build it and, and acquire assets. And that was because of that kind of boom bust thought process. And you know, we didn't know when 
what the volatility of the cannabis market would be, you know, as we continued continued forward. And, you know, obviously we've seen we've seen some of that volatility intensify over the last call it three, four months. But our goal from the outset really was to identify operators that were already strong, right? Guys that were already generating revenue, guys that were already generating cash flow. And then take those operators and then and like I said, overlay this technology platform. And initially when we set out into 2017, it was a very different conversation, right? We're having to tell them what that technology platform is. It's, uh, I would say that <laughs> probably more than half of them probably were looking at us, you know, as if, you know, we were, we were crazy and didn't really, you know, even want to understand it. And then, you know, so it was, it was a little bit of an identification process in, in terms of wanting them to become, you know, full partners with us. And, and it, it, I should also mention that these, these operators are, are guys that stay with the company and want to fulfill, you know, our, our overall mission at Cordova as well. So, you know, we're looking for guys that are, that are, that are strong operators. And now that, that conversation has switched quite a bit, right? So we've, we've secured some assets. And I would say that we've gotten a lot of inbound inquiries from other states, uh, you know, that are, that are not the, the ones we're already in, but from, from other states that want to be the sole purveyor of this technology, right? That, that understand or want to understand at least and have had deeper conversations about what that technology can bring, bring to the market and effectively what that technology brings to the consumer of their particular jurisdiction. So, you know, first and foremost, I think it's strong operators. Uh, secondly, I think it's that relationship distribution component that I was talking about where they have a lot of contacts so that we can move product down that distribution chain effectively. You know, I'd say those are the, the, the biggest qualities. I would add, it's also kind of the, the business culture. There's a lot of different kinds of operators that exist in the space now. Some that are in it just for the quick buck, as it were, and some that are truly have truly built stable operations. They've gone through the trials of being an early starter in a very tumultuous environment that this industry is, and they've worked their butts off. They understand this this business is not about just a quick buck; that it's actually a lot of hard work, and they've got a little bit of of experience. Some have more than others, but they're all on that same page. And that's what, in our experience, what, what that has translated to is they take their work very personal. And I believe that that's a very important component of taking the forward moving steps in this industry is having operators in the space that care enough to go the extra effort, to do the extra steps, to pay the extra attention to the regs, to help advance the regulations, to do the do all the things that, that go into building a, a truly quality product that the consumer deserves when they're going in and, and purchasing it. How competitive is it right now? Is are, are these a lot of these conversations you're having where you're chatting chatting with these potential assets is it where you're competing is it like like buying a house where there's like 20 people bidding or is it something that because of your brand and word of mouth like it's usually the only conversation going on does it depend what's the kind of general uh, landscape look like right now well i mean from the landscape pers- uh, perspective it's certainly gotten more competitive that said i think you know we're a little bit of an outlier because of what we're bringing to the table in those conversations it's just it's not just capital it's the operational expertise that Nate and his team has, plus the technology platform that, we, that we've been discussing. So, you know, I think some people, especially investors that are new to the company or that are looking at it are surprised at kind of the, the multiples that we're paying for these operators, especially on a cash flow basis. And so, you know, what I continue to say back to them is that there's no other acquirer out there that we feel there's no other acquirer out there that really has the same offering to bring to the table as we're bringing. And so hence the reason why it's been kind of spiraling in our direction, I would say, because as more operators from other states call us, they're looking to be acquired by somebody like us that can advance them not only, you know, operationally from a just general operation standpoint, but also from a you know competitive differentiation standpoint in terms of what products they're going to bring to market. Listeners, do you hear that when you send Taz and Nate an email and said, Meb sent you, when you get all these uh, crazy inbounds, don't blame me for, for, <laughs> for, for all the inbounds. Um, I'm, happy, I'm happy to look through more, uh, more opportunities. That's always interesting. You know, we just got a very relevant package today. We, we occasionally get some thank yous for the podcast today. And uh, we had a very thoughtful gift that showed up today that was in a box that was uh, Nate, Nate will know what this is. Taz may never had it, but uh, we got a bottle of Canadian ice wine. Ah, very good. 
Yeah, <laughs> not a single person in my office knew what it was. I, I knew because I, I used to have a Canadian roommate many years ago, but loved it. We ha- we we haven't. It's only ten a.m., so we haven't cracked it open yet. But thank you. Shout out to the listener. And if you guys want to send any more wonderful gifts, we love eating them and drinking them. Ninety percent of the gifts end up being food, food and drink. All right, so talk to me a little bit about to the extent you can. I know you're a publicly traded company, so you can say this without maybe uh, using any names or anything, but but like maybe walk me through, is, is there anything interesting out there today, like as you look around to acquire something, what, what would be like an example of an asset? I think listeners would like to hear like, are you just going to go buy a farm or are you going to go buy a particular brand that maybe, you know, has great distribution channels, but is underutilized that may like, what, what, what are some examples without really naming names that might be a good overview of how all this works. Sure. So I, I think, you know, every acquisition, as I continue to tell investors, every acquisition has been very different for us. And and the reason it's been different is because we want to have a true relationship with the operator that works for, for both of us. So we're willing to kind of bend over backwards, so to speak, to make it work when we find that operator that we really want to get in bed with and and partner with going forward. I'd say a couple of things, certainly somebody that's kind of been through the the trenches, you know, uh, in these more developed markets, these are guys that have seen the price of the commodity go from 5,000 a pound to 800 a pound and been able to fight through that and grow their business as they've seen that. Certainly some of the more nascent markets haven't, haven't been through that yet, but, but those, you know, the operators that are kind of have been through the war, so to speak, Guys that have a lot of relationships in the industry to be able to push the program forward, you know, in as most, uh, you know, kind of effective way possible. That's another one. I think it, it, it really, it goes to the, like I said earlier, the culture. As Taz commented on, you know, it's, it's, it's about joining forces. You know, our ambition is to not be, not come in like a wrecking ball by any stretch, but to participate as a means of, of augmentation and supplementing the existing operation and helping it to either achieve goals that they may already have in mind or to realize goals that they didn't even know were possible. That's really where we see ourselves fitting into these existing operations that have proven themselves to be completely relevant in their in their respective markets. Just examples may be helpful, right? So in Oregon, we purchased a cultivator, right? There was a, a good cultivator, high-end flower, but they had a product that they had that in, that had significant distribution in, in over half of the uh, dispensaries in that market, right? So we were paying for the cultivation operation, but got the optionality on the distribution that they had once we built our, our manufacturing products and put them into the, into the market. In Washington, different. It was, it was kind of an end-to-end operator, X the retail piece, and uh, they have a very good brand name. They're a high-end flower operator, but also have a, a very good brand name across 100 SKUs, 100 plus SKUs or so. So, you know, it, that was a different acquisition. And, and we felt that they had excellent distribution in the, in the eastern part of the state. And they were selling everything that they possibly can sell through just given their uh, square footage on cultivation. And so we we are coming in and expanding that operation and then want to push them into the western part of the state uh, as they have more product to sell. In California, it's a little bit more ground up. We're taking an operator that has a family history in, in the cannabis space, has worked with a consortium of, of other cultivators and growers and has access to, to be able to, to, to permit out these, these properties pretty quickly. And so, you know, we're, we're building it a little bit from the ground up, but the returns on that model uh, relative to some of the other operators that we were looking at are, are vastly superior. And certainly that operator has a good knowledge of what we're bringing to the table on, on the technology piece as well. So it's really spanned across a number of different opportunities. And, and you know, each one is very different. But uh, just to give you a flavor of what, what we've looked at, I thought it might be helpful. One of my favorite investing books is called The Outsiders. And uh, it does profile of about a dozen companies. And it talks about how the sexiest part of a company is talking about the operations and all the day-to-day building new products and launching them. They say, you know, often not as sexy, but but an equally important part of the business is capital allocation. Maybe talk to me a little bit about how a fast-growing, young public company, how do you deal with like, so as you're thinking about these acquisitions, is it a situation where you're like, oh man, we have all these targets and then you need to have partners that you go raise money from the public markets. Is it something where you do kind of bank financing to do them? I assume you're a little early in your life just to be doing it purely out of cash flows. How, how do you balance that growth? Is it an area where it's a huge pain in the butt for you? Is it How, how, does, how does that kind of work? I'll say that it's not easy. 
you know, certainly with the regulations the way they are and, and operating on a state by state basis, there are not a lot of synergies across state to state, even though some I know multi-state operators say, say there are a lot. They're not a ton, which was why we think that there is competitive d- differentiation in the IP from that technology platform. But yeah, it is a balancing act, right? And at the end of the day, we're looking for, when we set out to put together the business plan for Cordova, we wanted to do it in a very linear fashion. And, you know, since we're public, you know, we needed to do it in a, in a fashion where the outside investor with, you know, not the intimate knowledge of a, of a private company uh, would be able to understand it, right? So when we set out, we said we wanted to go after the more developed Western markets of the US first. And so that's what we've gone after. Quite frankly, we've probably done it a little bit faster than we thought we would. Some of that's because of the speed at which the industry is, is going. And some of that's because we found the right opportunities. I, I think primarily it's because we found the right opportunities to back. But there is a number of other opportunities that we have in the hopper, whether they be other states, whether they be export opportunities from our Canadian, soon to be Canadian operation. There's a number of different opportunities that we've come across that we think are quite frankly awesome. And you know, we have to pass on some of those. In some cases, we try to put them on the back burner if we think that opportunity is willing to wait for a bit. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're looking to have a, a story that that the investor can understand, that the investor can appreciate. And it and really where we're building a business, first and foremost, a business that and you know, and when I went through business school, it was all about generating a business that generates revenue, that generates cash flow so that you can sustain yourself both through the good times and the rough times. And and that's really our main focus from a capital allocation standpoint over the next, you know, near term and and medium term. I can sympathize with that quite a bit. As you guys turn your gaze to the horizon, I'd love to hear Nate opine on this a bit. You've seen two decades of the growth of this industry and fits and starts and regulatory and everything else going on. What's what's the future look like for for the general cannabis industry in general? And you can also talk to Cordova as well. You know, anything in, in general that you think people might not be thinking about that, that maybe your views that are different than just the general accepted beliefs. What's uh what's what's the future look like? Well, I think we're gonna continue to see continued growth in the industry. I think you're gonna see different types of operators getting into the space more and more. Those that have had more classical experience in manufacturing in pharma, for example, uh, or other larger scale manufacturing operations that bring the resource of, of experience to the game. I think you're definitely going to continue to see a significant advancement in the, uh, in the science and the technology components that, that go into it. And I think that the industry is prepping for it. That's entirely the mindset that, that we've taken. And our approach is that we believe that the future of the cannabis product line is is going to continue to be refined and be in need of significantly advanced capability uh, and functionality when it comes to designing and building these products that are going to meet the consumer needs. And that's the really exciting to me challenge part of working in these more developed markets is you have not only a more developed industry, but you have a extremely much more educated consumer that is discerning in what they want and really has little patience for a substandard product. And I think that's where you're going to start to see a segregation in the manufacturer's space from those that are that truly have the ability to, to design and build products that meet consumer wants and needs and those that just don't quite have the tools. That's what we've kind of anchored our, our, our platform on is the advancement of our technology and it's really, it's, a, it's, it's, it's never ending. For all the research that we do and the things that we've already developed and understood, we continue on a very regular basis to develop new and different opportunities in the lab that will achieve more and more with the material. There's a lot packed into that little plant. And, uh, you know, I, in my opinion, I think we've only just scratched the surface uh, as an industry and what the, the real capabilities are here. And I think you're going to continue to see a lot of really neat and exciting things come out of it that, you know, as these more developed companies and more sophisticated labs and, and research companies and all these these different groups get involved in the industry and, and put some real resources to it, you'll see a lot of these things come out and, and become available to the consumer. And that's, that's to me, the, the future of the cannabis industry. Not that it's been struggling in its simplest form, but we're certainly seeing that the consumer is expecting more and more. So that that's my view as the as the front line here. It's interesting because you've seen the use case already expand. I mean, I can count so many friends, contemporaries, 
older generations that even never would have even thought of using cannabis recreationally, medicinally, you know, using a lot of the products now across all the spectrums. And, and it'll be interesting to see as it kind of evolves more accurately into the actual effects. I mean, it reminds me of that. Oh, what is that bar, granola bar that it's like on the front, it says like, this contains one cashew, four dates, two almonds and three blueberries. And like that, that's it. But it'd be interesting to see, you know, eventually, you know, a lot of the brands that, you know, they're like, well, you know, this edible or this vape is going to have this very specific effect um, where, you know, you, you're going to get sleepy after an hour. This one uh, maybe will help with uh, focus and this, that and the other. And this one's going to make all your teeth fall out and you go crazy running down the street. But I think it's already started to happen. But but yeah, the education of the consumer is, I think, going to be key there too. Taz, any thoughts on the on the horizon, what the what the future looks like? Yeah, I mean, you know, as as Nate pointed out, I mean, we're we're focusing on the developed markets where the where the consumer is is far more advanced than some of these other more nascent markets. But also, I think you know, the bigger picture is we're also focused on the consumer that hasn't tried cannabis yet, right? And and the consumer that doesn't want to that doesn't want to smoke. And certainly, you know, obviously that that cat's out of the bag, but. But the mediums that will be delivered from a cannabis product in product standpoint over the next, you know, one, two, three, four years will, I think, be vastly different in terms of what's being offered today and, and, and how that, that those products are being offered from a um, disclosure standpoint in terms of, to your point, what, what's in them, uh, what exactly is the effect. And, and I know there's a lot of those products out there today. And I think what we would argue at Cordova is that that experience that they may be saying they're offering may be, you know, the right intent, but it may not be consistent for you every single time just because it's not a truly formulated product from the compound up. What's the general corporate plan for Cordova? Is it something where uh, you guys are just going to build it out to a billion dollar brand? Uh, you think eventual partnership sell to Heineken and Imbev and what's, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the general uh, runway? I mean, we're building it for the long term, right? So, so we've, you know, are, are the in the short term, I think the goal is to essentially prove out those markets that we have um, under under our umbrella now, and then, you know, obviously deploy this uh, technology and the end products uh, that are coming off this platform in those developed markets, and then expand, whether that be uh, both uh, across the U.S. and and globally. So, there's no real end in this game, no finish line, at least that uh, we've mapped out. And, uh, you know, we want to be in it for the long term. What the uh, what the future holds, we don't know. But so let's, you know, let's plan for the long term. I love it. It's funny, though, you know, the, as you see the general acceptance continuing, I mean, it's it's funny that on the financial side, it's still been pretty slow. I mean, obviously, for you guys, I imagine the banking uh, is a pain in the butt in the U.S. But for us on the investment side, as far as the custodians, willing or unwilling to hold cannabis securities is funny because these securities already exist in many indexes already, but as a dedicated fund, um, it's, uh, it's still slow. Maybe, maybe 2019. We'll see. What I would say there to that same vein, because we've seen it also, obviously, as a public company and in, in, in raising capital, both in, in Canada and the U.S. and perhaps, you know, in the future internationally, that's the reason why we've cross-listed. So we have a ticker in the U.S., we have a ticker in Canada, in Canada, it's uh, CDVA. In in the U.S., it's LVRLF. Just just to that to that point, I, I think that's you know allowed us to be able to attract you know investors from both sides of the uh, both sides of the border. Has it mostly been um, one or the other as far as inbound interest? Is it mostly? Do you feel a Canadian story, a U.S. story, both? No, I think I think it's both. I, I think it's slowly you know, shifting. You know, all the interest is in Canada. Certainly, if you know, look at where all the money has been made over the last call it three years since call it late 16 it's been in canada where guys have made massive massive multiples of their money and so obviously they were playing with house money in some regards so they were willing to 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 put um to take more risk in getting going after the u.s market i think you know over the course of of 2018 the u.s capital from both a retail and from an institutional standpoint has has really started to loosen up a little bit and and look to look to this space and i think that's only building so i think what we'll see is I don't want to say less interest in Canada, but certainly from a from a mixed standpoint, you know, uh, the U.S. investor I think will become uh, more predominant over the next, you know, really over the next year and and, and definitely over the next couple. We're, we're we're patiently waiting. We've had a fund filed for years now, so one of these days, a custodian will will wake up. So, for someone who's interested in this industry, say it's an investor, fund manager. 
um, even someone on the on the development side, on the operational organizational side, they want to start to learn more. What what are the best resources? Um, do you guys have any general books, magazines, conferences, uh, podcasts, anything? What what where do people go for for information on this space? Investment banks, anything that you think of off the top of your head that's generally useful for people that, that really want to learn more? Yeah, so so there's a number of different data providers out there that have been around for a little while. Certainly MJ Biz does does a little bit of that frontier. BDS Analytics, ArcView, and some of their products are, are you have to pay for, and some of them are free. Oftentimes, they'll put out some sort of primer, which is available, uh, or at least which is part of it's available for free, and then you can pay for the rest of it. So I think that's a good source on the overall industry and kind of what's happened, you know, over the last you know four, five, six years. Certainly, the investment banks are in Canada have been covering this space for some time. I think there's still a dearth of coverage in the U.S. Um, and so. I think what's going to happen, you know, in the U.S. over time is that you know more and more banks will cover it. Right now, you see guys like um, Cowan covering it. Obviously, Can Accord has a U.S. operation covering it. There's a couple of other players out there that I, you know, we think that are that are getting into it. And yeah, it really will progress, in my opinion, at the at kind of how how Canada did, right? You, you know, you have some of these less risk-averse players that are willing to to dip their toe in. And then uh, you'll see, you know, the bigger banks follow suit. And, you know, from what I've heard and, 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 and you know, through our conversations, I think that those, those bigger banks are, are, are primed and ready to get into this space, um, you know, in very short order. You know, some of them may wait for federal legalization. I, I doubt that most of them will. And, and we're already starting to see some of that movement because of the, the farm bill and, and industrial hemp and, and what that, that means for the U.S. And, and the cannabis will eventually follow. And Nate, until you write a book, any thoughts on where people go to learn a little more about the uh, the whole space, particularly on the uh, understanding the science side? It is challenging. I will agree that there's not a lot of the classical reference material that you would find in other industries. While these conventions and you know hosted events are, are certainly helpful to an extent, they're really just very superficial when it comes to driving into and getting an understanding of the technologies, their deployment, their practical applications, all the different components of it. I think the best thing for the investors to do from an educational standpoint is to is to truly try to interact with the uh, with these operations. And I think after having a couple 10, 20 different different interactions, they'll be able to paint a much clearer picture for themselves of what they're viewing as something that is truly a pharmaceutical slash GMP type of operation, or is this something that is kind of more of a putting a little polish on a shoe and hoping for the best, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm not at all meaning to sound, you know, critical of, of certain operations. I'm just saying that there is a pretty broad dichotomy of, of different operations in the space. And the best thing that the investor can do is to really go and interact with the operations, ask questions, spend some time in the operation if possible with its management, but also interacting with the staff and, and getting a feel for the company's culture and how the operation is flowing. It's, it, it's, it's certainly a lot more than just what's on paper. Um, that's one of the challenges is when you're evaluating an operation or a company in, in the space is that what's on paper doesn't really always do a fair job of, of transmitting what is going on inside the operation, what, what the realities are, what the future it has, what the potentials are, all of those things. I mean, um, I know we've had the opportunity to look at a variety of things and, you know, you sit down in the boardroom and see some great ideas on paper and hear some, some numbers and some concepts and all the wonderful stuff. And then you go into the factory floor and it's, uh, you know, smack in the face reality. This is not a possibility here. This, the resources aren't here to make this a reality. And so, I, you know, it's something that from an investor's perspective, not, you know, some having more than resources than others to, to call on, you know, I would use as many as you have access to, to, to really dig into these, these opportunities and make sure that it's a lot more than just a story. Yeah, I think that's actually, wow, great advice for really in, any investing in general, where you have these disruptive startup industries that are growing fast, you know, you get a lot of pretenders that people would assume that's automatically terrible, but it's also good in the sense that there's a lot of room for value added homework 
and research. And so both on the investment side, to be able to separate the legit from the, the snake oil salesman is important, but also on the operational side too. We like to wind down the podcast with always asking people in 2018. It's 2019 now. We need a new question. Listeners, send us a new question if you have good ideas. 2018, we asked, what's been your most memorable investment? Taz, you're up first. Nate, you too. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I'd have to say my most memorable investment was actually uh, when I first started in the in the hedge fund space on the public equity side and being short palm. It was kind of one of my very first short ideas and kind of put me on the map in terms of analytical capabilities and starting off my investment career on the right now. As you think back, I mean, shorting is shorting is a tough game. What was the thesis? Was it was a balance sheet? Was it just this business is crap? Was it no one wants to use a Palm Pilot. Yeah, it was, it was it was it was pretty self-explanatory. I mean, really, really, what it was was they just didn't have the channel throughput at the time. You could diligence it rather rather easily. There was three carriers, which there still are today, and and there was really only one product that they were shipping, which was the the Trio, the new Trio at the time. And so it was a simple kind of how many can they make and how many can they sell through. And yeah, the demand just wasn't there at the time, and so. Uh, they just didn't have the balance sheet and the uh, and the demand to support it at the time, and then you know we all we all know what happened to Palm you know in short order after that is as the iPhone came out and and I believe 2007 and and you know the the competitive landscape you know shifted dramatically but but yeah that was probably the most memorable one on the you know it's a little bit of a different different answer because it's on the short side on the long side it would have to be Google I mean that was it that was you know participating in that IPO and kind of what that became and. I don't want to say it's it's similar to cannabis necessarily, but when Google went public, when I was first getting up to speed on it and trying to talk to experts in it, I mean, nobody really understood how Google worked and 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 what you know what made it competitively different. There's a couple of parallels in that, and, and so you know, getting in on that uh, on that public offering and, and being able to see that kind of grow was fascinating. The Google offering was interesting because, um, if I recall. You know, they they didn't IPO in the normal route, and the stock didn't immediately pop. Is that right? Didn't it kind of go yeah. down 10, 20 percent right. or something? I don't know. I can't remember how much it went down, but it was a Dutch auction. And the Dutch auction, I believe, it was a Dutch auction, and and that or or some version of an auction, let's say. And the auction price wasn't wasn't what they thought it was going to be. I'm trying to remember exactly, but I I, I want to say it was like 140 bucks, and then you know it kind of opened up at the 115, 120 level. And then work from there. But the earnings power of Google, and just like I said, the understanding of how they made money, you talk to people and said, oh yeah, Google's awesome, but they didn't really understand why. And, and so there's some parallels here, not only just because of the internet space and Google was not exactly early to the, to the internet space, right? It was, it was going public in 04. It was, I think, founded in 98 or 99. So that was not at the cutting edge of, of internet. And yet look where they are today. I, I think there's, a, there's quite a few similarities to the, to the cannabis space, right? I mean, the, the early players, some of them, I think, will, you know, essentially be, you know, acquired out or, or die off or what have you. And, you know, the guys that focus on the long game and the, and the appropriate uh, metrics and in, in, in building a business, you know, the right way went out. Not, I'm not saying by any means that, <laughs> that we're trying to be Google, but I do think there's some, there's some similarities just for the whole cannabis space and, and what's gone on over the last three, four years in the space. It's funny because I should have known that Google would have been an amazing company with my value-added research when I was a ski bum in Lake Tahoe. They used, as a private company, used to have their annual party. They'd fly people in from all over the world and rent out Squaw Valley. And they had like nine different bands and tents and people dancing on stages and fire and ice sculptures. I should have just took a look around and said, my God, this company has more money and they know what to do with. I should just, <laughs> see, sometimes investing is simple. Sometimes you just look around and say, this company has so much money. It's so stupid. What They have to be a good investment. All right, Nate, anything comes to mind as, a, as the most memorable investment? Well, I wish I could say that I had the level of sophistication as your, the conversation you guys just had. I'm not from the investment banking world. Uh, I have financial advisors that deal with most of that. But thinking about it, I guess the one I've, ones I've enjoyed the most have been kind of in a, I guess you say more of a niche area, which is numismatics. I've enjoyed having something tangible. And in all reality, some have made more than others, but none have ever lost money. You're going to have to go back and listen to our Van Simmons podcast is of the, of the words I, I consistently murder. Cordova being one, but numismatist, I cannot pronounce for the life of me, and cannabinoid. Those are like, I, there's, there's like five words and they're all one, but it's, it's a fascinating area that 
Um, I dipped my toe in after the van episode and bought a few coins, um, and it's been a lot of fun. And uh, but I'm a I'm a collector at heart, you know. Going back to to comic book baseball card days, um, most of which are probably worthless. Um, and I, I, on the other hand, have a probably hugely negative <laughs> return on all my collectibles, but it's fun. And uh, classic cars, all that good stuff. Uh, all right, gentlemen. Um, look, it's been a lot of fun. If people want to find more info on your company, if they want to send you terrible pitches about their brand and assets and farms, or if they're interested in investing, where do they go? Uh, so it's at Cordova Can. C-O-R-D-O-V-A-C-A-N-N.com or uh, drop us an email at info at cordovacan.com. Awesome. You guys, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. Listeners, you can always find more in the show notes, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. We'll list all the links to everything that Taz and Nate talked about today, resources, ideas, everything else. You can find us in the archives. Please subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a review. We read all of them, I promise. Or subscribe to the show on my favorite Overcast and Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.